This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers, who asked you to take the bond challenge by using, well, the simple and free Interactive Brokers bond search tool to search their deep availability of bonds and to compare available yields against those of your broker. Learn why Benzinga has just named Interactive Brokers the best broker for bonds in 2021. Go to ibkr.com slash bonds. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Sheer stupidity. Afghanistan is just a terrible mess. Jackson Hole, Powell speaks. What did he say? Meme stocks ramping. For what reason? And we have listener questions. One of my favorite questions coming up. All this and much more on episode number 729 of the Discipline Investor Podcast. Hey, hey, the end of August is here, and that is just when we start heating up. Yeah, us and the markets, I guess. Well, I am Andrew Horowitz, and welcome, welcome to the heat, and welcome to the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Listen, uh, I'm the host, I'm the founder of Horowitz Company, Inc. We help people with their investments. It's that simple. It's what we do each and every day. I wanted to um, spend a little recap time just just for a moment recapping where we are right now and put some perspective on things you know I, I try to discuss all this in a way that's somewhat easy to understand but I also know at the same time that a lot of times when listeners listen to especially new people to the markets they listen to people like me with the lingo with the stock jockiness it's kind of hard to understand. And if you don't understand everything that we're talking about, listen to me. Do not get discouraged. Do not throw in the towel. Do not say, you know what? I have no idea what's going on because I tell you something. Just like that first time you stepped into that job that you're working today, you knew nothing about anything for the first, I don't know, two, three weeks. Every time we try something new, it's very difficult to understand exactly what's happening if we've never done it before. What I will promise you is that over time, you are going to start to understand more and more. It's like a miracle happens that you just listen, you absorb, you hear what we talk about, some of the commentary, the ideas, and yes, the lingo. And you start to understand the language of the markets, the language of investing. If I start talking to you about, hey, we're going to talk about puts and calls, and you know what? I'm going to talk about doing short puts and naked options. You're going to be like, you know, for the first time, you're like, what? But as we get into this and as we start talking about this more and more, you are going to understand it in an entirely perfect manner. So don't get discouraged. Just, just stick with it. 
And don't be too hard on yourself because this is hard stuff. There's no question about it. It requires time and patience and, and some work. You need to spend the time. You need to do the work as they say. And that is something that we're doing here each and every week. There's a method to the madness. There's a method to the how we operate and what we do here each week, providing you not only information, sometimes raw information, just sometimes a, a, a slight look into what's happening on the surface. Sometimes we dig a lot deeper. We bring in guests. We talk about things that happen on a regular basis. Sometimes we harp on things that are really important right now. It's all for education, strictly informational sometimes. But we learn. We get the info. We start to understand. We figure it out. And that's how we bring it into working within the program, the plan, the investments, and as I dare say, becoming more disciplined in your investment process. So that's all part of what we're doing here each and every week. So with that, let's get some inputs, okay? Let's talk about some of the things that are going on. I thought it was really interesting. There was some comments in a recent report, if you will, from J.P. Morgan. And I want to go through these because it split up and talked about two different scenarios for the markets. And they're not talking about just necessarily today or tomorrow. But they're talking about the outlook. And they, and they said, you know what? It's not necessarily binary. It's not just these two possible scenarios that will play out, the bull case or the bear case. But if we were to build a bull case, let's see what it would be that we'd put into that scenario. And if we were to build the opposite and say, hey, you know what? Let's just come up with all the reasons why we should be negative on markets now into the future. Well, let's build that case and see what that comes out and what that looks like. So the bull case that they started first, well, that we'll start with first at least, let's talk about the elements, what J.P. Morgan included, because I think there's a lot that I agree with here on both sides. That's why I want to bring it to you. The first thing they talked about was earnings momentum. And some of the players uh, at J.P. Morgan, the people that would do the fundamental research and come up with the analysis of where earnings are going on a macro basis, not just one stock, but the totality of stocks were rising. J.P. Morgan's increasing their estimates of EPS on 7 2021 so last month, um, to 202 for 2021 and 230 in totality, 230 for the estimate of the S&P, uh, to 2022 and 250 for 2023 all above a street consensus. Now, one of the things that we do see that is happening right now is a lot of analysts are increasing their estimates. And as they're increasing their estimates, the outlook, what we have to look at in, in terms of the calculation of what is the value of the S&P 500, well, if we take, let's say, a 20 PE is kind of rich, but that's what it is. And we say the 230 is the 2022 number. Well, we just obviously can look at that and say 4,600 is the outlook for that and 5,000 for 2023. That's assuming a 20 times multiple on the forward earnings. In other words, the PE at that level. 
Very simple math. Now, depending on where rates are, will also be dependent on what we could really get away with in terms of stretching valuations into a level of, of multiple. So if you want to think that things are going to be rosy for a long period of time with very low interest rates and you want to say, well, hey, we'll take our uh, level to a 22. So what we do is we take, well, next year's number, what they're estimating at $230 per share. We'll just do that live as we talk about times 22. That Then at the end of the year 2022, we should see a 5,000 number on the S&P 500. If we go further, 22 times, uh, what do we say, 250, well, that's 5,500 at the end of 2023. Now, if you want to say, well, that's all fine and good, but interest rates are starting to come up, and I think we need to discount a little bit, well, let's take a look. I think the PE on a forward should be 18, 18 times uh, 230, which is the end of 2021, 4140. So we need to see a kind of a bring back for levels that we are at today. Anyway, a lot of work goes into that. That's how they come up with it. They look at historical numbers, interest rates. They look at the discount mechanism. They look at the multiples. The second thing that they talk about from a bull case, well, accelerating buybacks were a pretty significant issue. As of um, the middle of August, we saw a total of about $477 billion of announced buybacks, which is implying an $800 billion annualized number which are trail only the 2018 number in dollar volume and exceeds 2019's $272 billion. In other words, what they're saying here from a bull case scenario is that we have a lot of companies that are actively involved in the markets. And any time that we see a significant amount of, of drawdown in stocks, well, we're going to see a knee-jerk reaction by companies to work their buyback. And as we are seeing this annualized rate of about $800 billion, which is equivalent to what we saw in 2018, that was again time when we saw the companies were continually creating value by increasing their buying of their own stock. The third area they talk about is an improving COVID environment. Now they're looking out a little bit in this Area And they think that it will boost consumer spending and job growth. Now, that's if there is an improving COVID environment. So far this year, over the last couple of months, we've had a declining COVID environment. In other words, a lot of people are backing off going out to dinner, going to the movies, traveling, thinking about that out into the future. And that could be a problem. But they're talking about the ability in a bull case to use that as an effective reproduction number, um, and it is the of COVID is declining in forty to fifty states. We'll see. Number four, more stimulus. The most likelihood is infrastructure, anywhere from I don't know five hundred billion to four hundred uh, to four trillion. <laughs> you know, can't count that high anymore. It's like Zimbabwe numbers. Remember those? I have a five hundred trillion dollars Zimbabwe note on my desk that a listener sent me in one time. And I think it's worth maybe $22 now, but that's only because we're all been debasing alongside of them. But the more stimulus that they're talking about here in terms of a bull case, I think it's really important, um, which is coming. Something's coming. The fifth thing is China growth reboot. The, the, the idea that China may decide to add more fiscal and monetary stimulus, which will help to increase... 
uh, overall growth. So that's their fifth. And their final point is improved labor markets. And this will also have a positive uh, direct impact on GDP. We're going to see labor numbers next week. Expectations are for another pretty substantial number of uh, growth, somewhere about 700 to 800,000 additions to the payroll and maybe another drop in the employment on, or the unemployment rate. Um, the other thing that they don't talk about really here is the fact that, you know, stimulus, but in the form of monetary policy. They talked about stimulus in terms of fiscal policy with money coming out of Congress. Now, on Friday, we saw that there was basically a nothing burger, gigantic, fun-filled nothing burger by Powell on the heels of a week-long parade of Fed operators that were coming out with talks about, hey, we need to start the taper now. As a matter of fact, there was a couple of speakers on Thursday and Friday that said, not only should we start now, we need to really finish it up and pretty much end our asset purchase program by the first quarter or within the first quarter of 2022. We're talking about going from $120 billion per month of asset purchase to zero in a matter of four or five months. Wow. They couldn't do that last time. There's no way they're going to do it now. But all this was building up throughout the week. All the non-voting members, very key, all the non-voting members came out, floated these trial balloons, came out with this discussion about how, you know what, taper is essential. We need to do it now. We don't want to miss the window. What if in the next year or so we see a declining environment in the economic backdrop in the U.S. and we need to do something for one reason or another and we already haven't done anything like raise rates or slow down the asset purchases, then we're going to have no room to do anything. We are going to be late. We don't want to miss that window. This is going on all week. Powell comes out at the virtual economic confab over in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It went elect uh, virtual this week due to the concern about COVID. And what we saw was him come out and say, basically straddled both sides. Didn't say much. Again, a nothing burger. What happened? Well, markets reacted very positively. One of the reasons is a lot of people were on the other side of the trade, right? A lot of players were looking at this as, hey, you know what? We may need to do something here. You know, we saw the S&P up dramatically. The small caps really flying. The NASDAQ went up. Everything really cooperated very nicely. Very neat package to offside what was going on. Um, and, and again, I think a lot of that was short covering um, in the area of uh, where we saw the significant amount of, hey, what if, let's hedge out, let's get some exposure to rates in the event that rates climb dramatically, and what if the stock market craters? And I think this was just a reversal of all that. Now, let's switch to the bear case. A lot of people are very concerned about, hey, what if? What if the markets don't cooperate? What if there is a situation where we see a significant amount of downstroke in the markets. I think this is very important. And the, the basically they, they have well, they have five different another five different areas, uh, including number one, a COVID expansion and mutation. And in the bear case, there is evidence that the Delta variant is more harmful to children than other strains. 
The 18-year-old hospitalization rate is the highest of the pandemic, giving children under 12 uh, the fact that they're ineligible for vaccines and may see lockdowns reinstated to protect kids. Hmm. Something we really haven't put into the equation. I really haven't put into the equation. But if we are building, and according to J.P. Morgan, if they are building a bare case, hey, this is one thing that you probably should consider. The second part is online schooling. And this is expanding on the whole point of COVID expansion. And um, there may be another move to delay or cancel in-person learning. And it's a market negative given the impact on the labor markets because people can't go back to work. Now, one of the things that a lot of people, I don't think it put in the equation is the idea that, hey, with children at home, even that people that want to go back to work can't. And that's a problem. We're all whining like, hey, look at all these job openings. Look at all these jolts numbers that we're seeing these job openings, yet people aren't taking them. Record number of job openings, but people don't want to work. Maybe it's not necessarily entirely that they don't want to work, but they can't. Kids didn't go to camp. Kids aren't going to school. Not only that, parents are involved in teaching, in, in, in education, in helping out. So in, if, in fact, we do see that there is the online classes canceled or delayed, is there the potential that there's going to be um, an impact on the labor market spending without stimulus and overall sentiment? That's number two. Number three, a Fed policy mistake. And as they say, at this stage, it would be announcing tapering too early, which could mean that unemployment does not reach the February 2020 levels as fin financial conditions tighten. Now, again, tapering, they're going to do slowly. They're not just going to turn the spigot off. We know that. They're hard-pressed not to increase the asset purchases, much less turn off the spigot. So here we are in a potential Fed policy mistake. I think I'd like to add on that. There's two areas that could be a mistake. Number one, as they mentioned, tapering, announcing too early, or tapering, announcing too late. I think there's a real concern about either way. And again, I think there is a window. I really do believe there is a time frame now. They're missing it already. They're on the edge of the outside of this window that has been created for them. They've been given this on a silver platter. Hey, you know what? Do this now. Number four, China's COVID zero policy hurts global growth. Now, China's shutting down the world's third busiest port in response to one positive case. One positive case triggered global delays, including the port of Los Angeles. But generally, the policy has led to most economists downgrading growth, including J.P. Morgan's Hybin Zoo. So they're talking about here about the concern about China saying, you know what? We see one case. Oh, no. Shut that down. And in this case, it was the port, which then has reverberations around the world in terms of supply chain issues. Now, supply chain issues have multiple factors. Number one, it could create a problem to other factories where assembly and of manufacturing of goods takes place. And when you have that situation, what happens is that people are no longer needed. Therefore, layoffs happen. The second thing is when you have fully um, assembled materials. There could be a supply shortage, thereby increasing the cost, inflation. I got my hair cut yesterday. 
When I used to go to this barber shop a few years ago, only about six or seven years ago, it started as a $20 haircut. Just a plain, simple haircut. Not a cut and blow, nothing fancy. A old-fashioned barbershop haircut. A few years later, $25. I went three months ago to this place to get a haircut, $25. I went yesterday, $35. I said to the, the fine barber, hey, Mr. Barber, what's with the $35? He goes, he looked at me. I said, let me get this straight. Let me just ask you, between me and you, eh, no hard feelings. You up the price because you can get it, right? Because everybody else is thinking. He goes, yep, that's exactly right. I said, uh, what about cost? Eh, cost too, but not really in a big cost manner. So we do see this inflationary environment spreading across everywhere, especially now in this circumstance with supply constraints. Now, uh, government shutdown. U.S. fiscal policy, they talk about, has been a tailwind throughout the pandemic, but the fighting surrounding infra and debt ceiling and the, the whole packages could lead to another shutdown. The 2011 shutdown led to U.S. credit downgrades on 11-5-2011, which led to a 1.29% decline in the SPX and all this yada yada. Not a lot really to concern about. We know they're going to fight. We know they're going to be concerned. We know they're going to get involved in the shenanigans that they do in government to get, raise that debt ceiling. I don't think that this administration is that brazen, bold, or has the guts to actually shut down the government because they'll spend. So that's kind of the bull bear case. I think it's uh, pretty spot on right now. We'll see how that plays out. I want to segue into some of the topics we just talked about, but I want to talk a little bit more about um, the taper for a second here. Because I think it's been in the news a lot, and I think a lot of people want a little bit more insight into what that is, even though I don't think that they're going to do it anytime soon. But I want to talk first of all about interactive brokers. I want to talk about the idea of a question you of what is payment for order flow? Have you heard that question before, right? That question, you hear it. What, payment for order flow. Basically, it's the money a market maker pays to your broker to trade your order at the price he decides. Your broker will charge you no commission and leave you no choice. So at Interactive Brokers, you do have a choice. You can choose to pay no commission just like at other brokers, or you can pay a small commission, and Interactive Brokers will try to match you up with an institutional order at a better price. It's really interesting to see the differentials. Now, it's up to you. You can kind of figure out what's nice. And what's nice about interactive brokers is you have that choice. A lot of places you don't get that choice. What I want you to do is learn more about this at ibkr.com slash PFOF, payment for order flow. ibkr.com slash PFOF. And, you know, we use interactive brokers for portfolios, for our clients, and it's really intense and pretty impressive what you can do with their platform. So go check it out and understand more about payment for order flow at ibkr.com slash PFOF. Now, as I said, I want to step on over to economics, talk about what went on at Jackson Hole this week. A lot of nothingness, as I said, what did I say? Oh, nothing burger. It was nothing burger. <laughs> That's what I said. So tapering. Tapering. You know, a lot of people, when they start thinking about, oh, we're going to taper, I think the idea that goes off in their head is, oh, they're going to stop the asset purchases, stop the quantitative easing, stop buying the bonds, which, by the way, they create money out of thin air to do this. 
but it's a taper. Think about that word, a taper. Somebody came up with this word. And it's essentially a slowing down of the current program. It doesn't mean they're going to stop. You know, this whole idea they're going to stop is pretty ridiculous. So they're going to, I don't know, do what? They'll do 10%, 20% for a few months. They'll see how it goes. But even if we get $20 billion per month less, I mean, we're going down to, what, $100 billion a month, which is 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 still enormous. Even if we get down to 80, $60 billion a month, even 50. Enormous numbers of bond buying. I mean, if they were serious about keeping true to economics and they weren't so concerned about scaring markets, they would have pulled back already. We know this. Everybody knows this. It's not only the elephant in the room. It, it's the, 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 the farce of all times. It's the lie, the big lie on this one, this economic big lie that we need to continue doing this quantitative easing program in order to, I don't know, make things work, get people back to work. Oh, come on. So ridiculous. The quantitative easing program itself is all about just making sure there's enough purchase of bonds to not let that blow up and keep interest rates low for the purpose of borrowing more money to pay for the obnoxiously large amount of money that the government is spending on all these programs. They don't tell you that. It's good for the companies. It's good for profitability. Does that mean that it necessarily trickles down into buying the opportunity for companies then to hire more? No. Just because companies are more profitable does not necessarily mean that they have money that they're going to spend on employees. In fact, they're going to try to find ways every day, every minute of every day, every hour of every day, and every minute of every hour to figure out how to squeeze as much as they can to create more profitability because that essentially will move the stock up over time when they have better earnings, which then leads the management of the firm to gather more for themselves. We Let's get down to what is really going on here. The opportunity for the Fed to increase the overall profitability of companies in an in, in a abstract notion to create this wealth effect does not hit people equally. And this is where that rich get richer, the poor get poorer, that's where this comes into play. Wealth gap inequity, wealth inequity, wealth, all of that. And they're not helping it. They're trying to, but they can't. The idea that the Fed is involved in climate change I can't even say it with a straight face. The Fed is involved in climate change issues. Like, what can you do as a Fed? I mean, that's ridiculous. Climate change, the Fed, wealth inequity, that they could do something about it. No. The truth is that we have GDP in the six-plus range, unemployment healing nicely, homes at a high, stocks at a high, inflation at a high, manufacturing strong, and we're talking about another $3.5 trillion of stimulus. Is there really anything more needed to talk about 
I mean, I knew we like it. I like it. We like the stimulus. We like the low rates and all that. But again, we need to set this up for the future. So I don't know if any Fed speakers or any Fed economists are listening or if they are not, doesn't matter. Fact is, we all need to keep on the lookout because, yeah, let's all admit one thing. We like our portfolios up. We like when they're moving higher. We don't want anything to disrupt them, right? I mean, yeah, we run a long, short strategy, but yet we have been very careful not to be on the short side or the hedge side. We use uh, cash as a buffer in the TDI managed growth strategy that we run, but we're very careful right now not to overly get too excited because the opportunity, even though, yeah, we saw some crazy moves last week with some of the um, retail, you know, we saw like, for example, uh, Nordstrom's, I mean, get smacked. And we saw the Gap didn't do so well. And we saw a variety of other names that were out there. And yeah, there's some in individual names like um, uh, some of the biotechs that got hurt pretty significantly last week or the week before, pick your poison of what the date is, but you had to be right on spot on and, and to the moment that day, Peloton, for example, got hurt Thursday after uh, their or Thursday night into Friday after they announced their earnings. All I'm saying is a market hedge though for systematic risk wasn't and isn't really something you want to play with right now because the markets, the market cap weighted, the big boys are just charging higher. But my point, though, is that's okay. By the way, that's okay. We use other buffers in the portfolio for quasi-hedges uh, uh, right now. And we like all that to go up. You know, and we like all of our portfolios to go up. We like all that's happening. But what's going on with the Fed right now is sheer idiocy. And, of course, the Biden administration is considering. They're not considering. They've decided already. But they're considering putting by, uh, uh, Powell back, reappointing him. The problem is they haven't watched that old Fram commercial. It was an oil filter, I believe. The saying on it was catchy and very simple. You can either pay me now or you can pay me later. Pay me now, pay me later. In other words, change the, 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 the air filter now or replace major parts of your engine later because you were too stupid to do it at this point. Mr. Powell... An open podcast, you know, you have open letters. An open podcast, Mr. Powell, we don't want to pay the piper later. That would be a major destruction of the dollar, of our economy, the ratings, and all the stability we have. Can you please do something now and stop being so ridiculous and kowtowing? You're not, you're not political. My ass, you're not political. What you're doing is everything you can to get reappointed and everything you can to, I dare say, help your own portfolio and all the wealthy people out there. That's fine. I'm into it. Let's make money. Let's go. But you also need to be realistic. You're making a big policy mistake here, my friend. That's all I have to say about that. Because, you know, the Republicans won't stop them. The Democrats won't stop what's going on. Nobody wants to take the the, the 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 you know the problem in their own hands, and it is political. When I say political, what I mean is it's all politically time based. Whatever your term is, that's where you don't want to see anything fall apart. 
That's why the current Republicans, depending on their term, they don't say anything bad. The Democrats, they don't say anything bad during their time span. That's why they usually say, we'll do this until a certain time. Well, wait a minute. Let me calculate that. Huh. Interesting. You know what? When this program cancels, it's right after your term is up. Hmm. Interesting. Now, in other economics, let's kind of uh, swing over to what's going on. Not that any of the major economics really are that important right now, because what matters right now is earnings more so, and of course, the stimulus and the positioning of the Fed. Housing. Housing. So some numbers over the last few weeks that a uh, little bit peaking going on right now. Nothing really to worry about. GDP holding on right now in the six uh, high 6% zone. Looking good. Employment next week. We're going to have the official BLS number estimates for the probable continuation of a strong employment growth that's been going on. Uh, manufacturing, wages, productivity, all looking good. Uh, but again, what is coming? Remember, thinking back to that J.P. Morgan report that we went on, the bull case, the bear case. So for now, overall, the Fed's the game. We know that. Earnings we're going to dig into into the next quarter. And let me tell you, again, analysts are really pushing up their estimates right now. That's something we need to think about. As we go through this, realize that economic surprise index concept where the analysts are behind the eight ball either way on the upswing, downswing. They readjust. They're starting to up their analyst earnings right now. That means that it's going to be a much higher hurdle to scale. I'm going to raise that bar. Um, it's also some of the, in the bear case, I think they should have added also that there is the potential for a, a concern over the fact that we have a significant amount of hurdle when it comes to the, um, the, the bar for, for earnings right now. All right. Now, uh, there was, uh, one or two questions that came in, I think here, yeah, let's get those. All right. So, Hey, I, I always say, do me a favor. Go over to uh, the website, and that is thedisciplinedinvestor.com. And you have the opportunity to ask any questions, and we will do our best either to read it on the air or I'm going to answer you directly, personally, depending on what you're writing. And we try to get to every single question. And I need you to ask questions because they do give us the opportunity to understand more about what's going on out there. So if you have something on your mind, something you want to talk about, even a comment, you want to hit me in the face about my relentlessness about what Powell's doing, or you want to say, hey, great job on XYZ, go over to the Discipline Investor, click on the Ask Andrew button top right, and just put in your comments, your questions, et cetera. We'll get to it. The other thing that you should do is follow me on Twitter, Andrew Horowitz, one word, Andrew Horowitz, no spaces. Make sure not to spell it incorrectly because there's a lot of fakers out there. But go out and uh, make sure to follow me right now. Thank you very much. And finally, on that note, you could also go over to any podcast repository or app or platform. You could do it on Apple and leave a review. It's really important to leave a review because I read all those. The team takes a look at all those, says, hey, you know, there, a lot of people really like what you talked about here, but boy, you suck on this. So, you know, this way we can refine and get better at what we do here uh, each and every week. So we had two questions. One of them coming up is probably my favorite of all time. One of the parts of the question uh, that I'm going to go to. But let's talk about this one. This is from Austin, not from the city, but from the, the person named Austin. 
Uh, he says, hey, Andrew, this is Austin. I'm 18-year-old from Nashville. So Austin's from Nashville, uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I just started to listen to your podcast a few weeks ago. I've been listening to Wall Street Unplugged as well. I work about 30 hours a week and make a roughly 15 bucks an hour. I have a few thousand dollars of brokerage account allocated to mostly blue chip stocks. With college approaching shortly, do you think it's important to decrease my time working and spend more time learning on how to invest? And what resources, book recommendations would help me uh, more about this market? So a couple of different things. Austin, you know what? If you send me your address, Austin, I'll send you a copy of The Disciplined Investor Essential Strategies for Success that I wrote some time ago that gives you a really good foundation. That's first of all. Second of all, I really can't tell you if you should decrease your time working. If the idea is, hey, I only have a certain amount of time that I could dedicate to school and something else, and I think that I can make more money investing versus working, I think you should have a very well-rounded situation. You should, first of all, be congratulated that you've done so well at putting money aside. Think about when you start making the big bucks, how you're going to do and be able to really build that brokerage account. Um, I think you really need to have a balance there. I would not object to you actually, you know, having all of these at once if you could do it. College being first and foremost, school, learning, education being your focus point. And then spending time because you could really work the educational component of the markets when the markets are open or closed, right? You're not trading, it doesn't sound like. You're really learning. So you could do that in the off hours, after your homework is done, after you finish your job. So I think that, uh, you know, if you need money, uh, I don't know if necessarily investing during this is going to bring in the money to pay for things. If you're trying to pay for books or you're trying to pay for, um, you know, part of the dorms or food costs, whatever it is. So I don't know your situation exactly, but I am going to send you a book. There you go. So uh, Austin, re reply to me uh, and send me, uh, your address. Okay. Uh, let's see. Next one comes from Andrew, another gent named Andrew. Now, this is this this particular one. Um, Andrew P. And I thought this was really great and, and gave me a tickle as well because, well, you listen, I'll tell you why. Andrew writes, I've been managing my, managing my own stock portfolio for about a year now and I'm up about 58% but I don't know much about stock investing. That's a full stop right there. Let's stop right there. Uh, yeah. Isn't that the point? Isn't that what's going on right now? Andrew, congratulations on being a 58% not knowing what you're doing. Can you imagine maybe if you knew something, it'd probably be up only 30%. Seriously. That's what's been going on in this market condition. It's almost like, you know what? The less you know, the better off in a way you could do. And that happens. We see those cycles happen. They don't last. I've seen this probably three times in my career. They do not last. 1999 was one of them. 2010 was another. 2020 was another. I could probably go back to the 80s, the late 80s somewhere too. But the, I've seen this where it's like, hey, let me just buy what's down and be done with it. Or let me just buy some of the go-go stuff and be done with it. And Andrew then writes, I don't know... I do know that once things start getting iffy and shaky with the economy, I'll probably be out of my depth. 
That being said, what uh, does one do about choosing a personal or firm advising on how to invest in money? Thanks. Um, listen to both your podcasts originally. So there's a couple of different ways that you can go about finding somebody to work with. And, you know, you can, there, there are lists of places like CFP, Certified Financial Planners. Um, you know, there's going to be certain requirements in terms of the amount of money that's available uh, to have managed if that does fit the minimums of some of the advisors out there. You can go and ask friends, acquaintances. Uh, some people like to find people in public areas, frankly, podcast, TV, radio, uh, what they read, experts, etc. I think when it comes to investing and finding somebody to work with, I think it's important not only to match your overall uh, personality, what you're like if you like the person you're working with, and if it matches your risk tolerance, if it matches your general goal, if it matches the way you like to do things. Some people, hey, they say, you know what? I don't want to buy individual stocks. I don't want the risk. I don't want the volatility. Well, if you go find an advisor that only invest in a concentrated portfolio of stocks, probably not going to be the right fit. On the other hand, if you have a desire that you want to, let's say, be extraordinarily aggressive and the advisor you choose is only, only uses mutual funds and only will use bond mutual funds. I'm going a little crazy here. That's probably not going to be a right mix for you. So you need to kind of like ask some questions about what they do, how they do it. But first and foremost, I think you need to understand yourself. If you understand yourself and you understand what you are looking for, generally speaking, and you may say, well, I'm not sure. Now, if your goal is, I just want to make as much money as possible, there is no advisor out there, no investment guy that is going to meet that goal. You need to refine it a little bit more than that. Like, what is your goal? Is it a tangible goal of retirement income in the future to meet my current living standards plus inflation or something of that nature? Or is it that I need to fund college education for my kids? I need to fund a wedding. I need to buy some cars. I need short-term issues because I need to buy a house soon. These are the things that you need to understand. Then you can match yourself up with an advisor with their particular strategy. Do you need financial planning or not? Do you need tax planning or not? Do you need somebody to help you with estate planning? Probably if you have those kind of things, you want to go with a certified financial planner or CFP. If you're strictly looking for investments only, depending on how much money you have, depending on the goals there, do you want stocks? Do you want bonds? Do you want mutual funds? Do you want ETFs? Do you want to blend? These are all things. Do you want a protection mechanism in your portfolio? Do you want some hedging? Maybe some buffering? These are all the questions that you could ask. But yeah, up 58% and you don't know much about stock investing. Love that. Love that. I think that's awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew, for your insights <laughs> and probably being one of my favorite questions in a very long time. We're going to put a halt to it, end it, say, hey, we're done. Right there and there. So uh, thanks for joining me. We have a guest next week coming on. I believe it's next week, next week coming on. We have the CEO of Arkimoto that's scheduled for September. Plenty of other folks, peeps, that will give us some great insights into markets and into uh, what's going on and ideas they have in education. So thank you for joining me. 
Make sure to subscribe. Make sure to be there. Make sure to tell your friends. Make sure to follow me on Twitter. Make sure to do what you can. Spread the word to become a disciplined investor. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to see you next week. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company. 